Welcome back to following a note on a Storm Knight podcast. This week is episode 174, and we're covering chapters 8 through 16 of The Hero of Ages. Elliot, how are you? Doing great. Doing great. Getting into the... Getting into that, oh, I'm in a new book now stage. Like, we got through the first initial chapters, and you're just kind of feeling out what the book is going to be like. I feel like we're starting to settle into a rhythm for, for Hero of Ages, I think. I agree. I agree. We're we're starting to get into it a little bit. Feels nice. Get the get the wheels turning um into our book here. No further thoughts. I'm excited to dive dive further in. Sounds good. Uh two quick announcements before the intro. First, um with our Stormlight refreshers um that we started last week. We will do those for each episode moving forward, assuming we're not painfully over time. If if we've spent like an hour and a half, an hour plus, um, we're not going to keep Paul up into midnight hours um, and do a stormlight refresher. So if we're if we're right about the hour, the hour to ten minute mark, which is which is usually what we go for, uh, we'll do a, a quick stormlight refresher at the end of the episode. If we're over painfully. It's not that we forgot it. It's that we're just closing early so that we don't go way over. Um, announcement number two. Elliot, I know you want to talk about these epigraphs because they're slightly more interesting than the previous books. So we're going to start with that because we didn't mention them at all last week. Um, so we will start with epigraphs after the intro. All right, I lied. We will start with the epigraphs after Elliot does a brief summary, and then we'll do epigraphs. Go ahead. I can tease it out even more. Uh, let's see. Summary. Chapters 8 through 16 of The Hero of Ages. They're still just trying to figure stuff out. Vin has a bunch of conversations with her, her Coloss, who we, we find out has a name. Kind of confusing name as that. Yes. Uh, we continue <laughs> to learn a bit more about Chandra. We we keep jumping into perspective of Hensoon, our our Chandra pal. So we are learning a little bit more about politics and what he's in for in the in the Chandra world. Uh, let's see what else. Apparently, uh, Set is is on the team now, and we've get some some strategy discussions with uh, with him as they decide what they're going to do about the problems facing the the entire world and trying to find the last cash that the Lord Ruler left, and also figure out how to deal with some of the other problems they have, like uh, the cities of Fadrex and Erto Ertau. And yeah, then we switch over to Spook in chapter 14. That wraps up part one. So at the start of part two, we jump into Spook's perspective and learn some very interesting things about him and the situation that uh, that he is in. And yeah, I think that wraps it up. That's good. I am excited to get into talking about Coloss, who's named human, but wants to be human, but he's actually a Coloss. But first, 
I want to go through these epigraphs. I'm going to go through them two at a time. Go ahead, Paul. I'm so excited for these epigraphs. But first, I hate <laughs> to cut you off, but this is way more important than epigraphs. We will get to those. We have a new surgeon in our midst, which I have to announce before we get too in the weeds of epigraphs, which I can't wait to be in. But um, I actually want to shout out uh, our new surgeon this week is someone who is a, a good friend of the podcast, someone who we've actually had as a guest in the past, um, our good old friend, Tim. Tim, if you're listening, uh, your name looks very short on my cup this week. Um because it's only three letters, so that's why. Um, we're very thankful for your support um, as a surgeon and also just as a, as a friend and, uh, you know, as always, just a fellow Cosmere reader. It's always fun to, to find something to relate about like this, and it's really grown into just such a beautiful community, and I'm getting way too sappy when we're about to... Trevor and Elliot are trying to dive into these epigraphs, which I am too, of course, but anyways, that ends my mini rant. Thank you so much, Tim. Um, and I hope, I hope we can do the epigraphs justice. We will. I'm, I'm super excited about this. So with all, all that said, take it away, Trevor. Thank you, Tim. Really appreciate you <laughs> backing us. Oh, on, I thought you were on Patreon. calling me Tim by accident. Okay. Yes. No. Thank you, Tim. Yes. Sorry. Thank you, Tim. <laughs> I said to you, Trevor, and you said, thank you, Tim. So it threw me off. Anyways, I'll, I'll, I'll I'm done. You're, you got it. Okay. The Hero of Ages, the epigraphs, Elliot, in the previous book, you verbally complained multiple times about how there was nothing in the epigraphs, they were boring. Um, is that how you feel this time? Uh, no, no, not at all. <laughs> I'm, I'm getting a lot of very pertinent information out of the epigraphs, a lot of hints, a lot of information, and and yet... And yet, I'm like, I'm scarred now from the previous book. Ah. And so now, I, now I'm second guessing everything. I'm reading these epigraphs going, <laughs> oh, wow, that explains everything. Or am I being lied to? Is it written in steel? Do I know this is true? Yeah. Obviously, I'm holding paper in my hand, so clearly it, it could have been changed. I don't know yeah. if... I don't know if that would be quite cost effective shipping every copy of the Hero of Ages with little metal plates in in the book. So <laughs> you're gonna have to forgive just paper. Probably not. Okay, chapter one. That's why there's so many differences between your two books. They've been <laughs> oh by ruin. How did we know? not bring that up? Oh my gosh! <laughs> oh. Yeah, it's. I mean, I think they should have just Mystery invested solved. in the metal plating, the steel plating for the books. Is what they really needed to invest How in. That is incredible, Paul. How did I not come up with that by myself? That was well. It takes a certain type of genius. Trevor. It does. It so does. And I very clearly welcome. don't have it. <laughs> You're very welcome. All right. How how much further can we push off reading these epigraphs? What else do we want to talk about before I? Um. No. So, I'm kidding. Chapter one. Uh, go ahead. Go ahead. I am, unfortunately, the hero of ages. Chapter two. Holding the power did strange things to my mind. In just a few moments, I became familiar with the power itself, with its history, with the ways it might be used. Yet, this knowledge was different from experience, or even ability to use that power. For instance, I knew how to move a planet in the sky, yet I didn't know where to place it, 
so that it wouldn't be too close or too far from the sun. Each of these I'm going to throw to you, Elliot, just for quick 30-second input, and then we'll bounce it off Paul for non-spoiler reactions. So you go first, Elliot. I... Okay, moving planets. This is this is pretty cool. Yeah. And stepping towards explanations for things, which is which is pretty cool. Such as we know or we think we know that schedule didn't always wasn't wasn't always the way it is now with volcanoes exploding in ash everywhere. It used to have green plants, it used to have flowers, all that kind of thing. Moving a planet too close to the sun or wherever it's not supposed to be yeah that might cause some problems like that so yeah answered i again i'm I'm doubting i'm hesitant like who, who who's writing these i am the hero of ages okay we know of we know of two hero of ages uh-huh. and later on it's going to talk about like stuff we learned about the lord ruler so it doesn't seem like we're talking about the lord ruler okay so Obvious answer might be Vin. Okay. This is a this is a Vin journal. Yeah. This is the this is the think way down the line. You know, Vin's got the or the Lord Rulers or old journal. Well, not actually his journal, but the I guess the Hero of Ages old journal. And I'm envisioning like hundreds of years in the future, someone picks up Vin's journal, and this is what they're reading now in these entries. Any input, Paul? So I I like what you're saying about this could be Vin's journal, but in the context of what this says, it talks about how the power kind of addled their mind and that they had insinuating that she, whoever this is, had the power for a while, more than a moment, because we saw how long Vin had the power. So I would say that this is not Vin. Um, Or at least not yet Vin. Fair, fair. Still could be in the future. Still could be in the future. Um, but at least as we know right now, I'm thinking this is someone else. You know, yeah. Uh, if if yeah. we're not saying this is something way in the future, this is like a little, you know, future to the sneak peek. Um, then it then it has to be someone else. It can't be Ben. You know, um, which is what I like to what I like to think. So, yeah, as far as the other stuff, I don't know if I, like, we saw a brief glimpse at the end of Well of Ascension from Ven of this power, but I don't know if it really, if it really captured the magnitude of it. I wasn't thinking about moving planets. I was thinking about, like, the power to heal Ellen and destroy people and destroy cities or things like that, you know? This seems like a very universal scale, not just a global scale, if that makes sense. And it's kind of scary. It's kind of scary, you know. I mean, especially when we look at a, the, a lot of the characters that we've seen in the story, even characters that are revered, like Kelsey, for example. Like with that power, would he do good? Would he do bad? You know, like it's it's uh, it's scary to think of a normal person having that much power, you know. I guess they would kind of become not a normal person with that power, but you know what I mean. So the only input I have is if you guys remember 
Cosmere 101 like a year and a half ago when we when we did that episode. You remember like the little preview excerpt like summaries of each planet written by our in-world scholar Chris who's from Silverlight. Um Silverlight's a city, I believe in um Shadesmar in the uh, cognitive realm. It's a it's a human city in Shadesmar and it's kind of your interplanetary hub. Uh, we, we've never been there. Um, we've just met a couple people that are from there. She said in her Scadrial, like, excerpt thing that it's hard to track Scadrial and study Scadrial because the planet has physically moved multiple times. Do you remember that? Vaguely. I do now, now that you mention it. So I just wanted to bring that up because it's mildly relevant when you say... I knew how to move a planet in the sky, yet I didn't know where to place it. Moving forward. Chapter 3. In some ways, having such power was too overwhelming, I think. This was a power that would take millennia to understand. Remaking the world would have been easy had one been familiar with the power. Yet, I realized the danger inherent to my ignorance. Like a child suddenly given awesome strength, I could have pushed too hard, and left the world a broken toy I could never repair. Chapter 4. This is actually what happened to Rashik, I believe. He pushed too hard. He tried to burn away the mists by moving the planet closer to the sun, but he moved it too far, making the world far too hot for the people who inhabited it. The ash mounts were, the, the ash mounts were his solution to this. He had learned that shoving a planet around required too much precision, so instead, he caused the mountains to erupt, spewing ash and smoke into the air. The thicker atmosphere made the world cooler and turned the sun red. So, does Elliot have to go first? Are we still doing that? Yes, Elliot has I... to go first. Okay. Okay. I, not a, that the biggest new information there, I guess, is the ash mounts, which is a curious and, I guess, effective solution to the the problem oh my plan is too hot let me make a bunch of volcanoes erupt all over it okay but yeah. i guess it achieves what he's trying to do although i think it, the epigraphs here are going to get into he he kind of keeps creating more problems with all the solutions that he that he comes up with well you make a very good point elliot um in my head i'm like you just moved the planet too close why don't you just move it back a little bit I'm sure it's way more complicated than that <laughs> but you know um uh, all i was gonna say was this does uh he's whoever our writer is here is writing back referencing rashik knowing what rashik did so it probably is from the future right because we haven't had one between rashik and where we are now so as far as we know I, we I, yeah that's fine so as of right now, it, it it lends to your to your theory a, a lot more with the one that I just was putting down. So, anyways, all right, Mister Science Engineer guy, if you take a planet, don't change its mass and push it closer to the sun, does that does that decrease its year length because it's going faster? So, yes. Okay. Yes, it does. That's what I thought. 
Me too. All right. Chapter five. Each time Rashik tried to fix things, he made them worse. He had to change the world's planet. The, sorry. He had to change the world's plants to make them able to survive the new harsh environment. Yet that change left the plants less nutritious to mankind. The falling ash would, would make men sick, causing them to cough like those who spent too long mining beneath the earth. And so Rashik changed mankind itself as well altering them so that they could survive. Chapter 6. Rashik soon found a balance in the changes he made to the world, which was fortunate for his power burned away quite quickly. Though the power he held seemed immense to him, it was truly only a tiny fraction of something much greater. Of course, he did end up naming himself the Sliver of Infinity in his religion. Perhaps he understood more than I give him credit for. Either way, we had him to thank for a world without flowers, where plants grew brown rather than green, and where people could survive in an environment where ash fell from the sky on a regular basis. Curious bit there about the the power faded away. That that seems odd. Yeah. Not sure what that's about. Also, just another curious note, root. Ruin is at work yet again. Every single one of these you read is like two or three words different in my copy. <laughs> no, nothing, is, nothing has been like completely different. It's all kind of achieving the same thing. But it's like every third sentence is written differently. Say, it says the same thing, but it's different grammar. That's so funny because canonically in world, that's how he changes things. He doesn't like completely change it. He just changes like small grammar things so that it... The meaning is slightly altered. That's really funny. Anything, Paul, before I go? No, feel free to go on. All right. Seven and eight. I speak of us as we, the group, those of us who are trying to discover and defeat ruin. Perhaps my thoughts are now tainted, but I like to look back and see the sum of what we were doing as a single united assault, though we were all involved in different processes and plans. We were one. That didn't stop the world from ending, but that's not necessarily a bad thing. It is too easy for people to characterize ruin as simply a force of destruction. Think rather of ruin as an intelligent decay, not simply chaos, but a force that sought in a rational and dangerous way to break everything down to its most basic form. Ruin could plan and carefully plot, knowing if he built one thing up, he could use it to knock down two others. The nature of the world is that when we create something, we often destroy something else in the process. I mean, these ones seem ominous. When, whenever this was written in the future, this person felt it important to state that didn't stop the world from ending. Oh, yes. Okay, great. So we have a world ending in front of us to, uh, to look forward to. And then... The one for chapter eight really starts to get into a question that's on my mind, which is where is ruin going to fall on our alignment mm. spectrum? Yeah. Is, is ruin evil? I, I can make some comparisons to Stormlight, which I probably shouldn't for, for spoilery reasons, but you know, I'm, qu I'm quite curious. We've got a strong, powerful being. I'll, I'll drop the word shard. Whether a shard is good or evil seems really important 
especially to the inhabitants of whatever planet that shard might be on. Right. And so is are we in a situation where preservation is good and ruin is evil? I'm I'd be surprised if it was that black and white, knowing Brandon. But it seems like that's kind of the direction it's going is heroes need to band together to defeat the evil ruin. I I like what you're saying, Elliot. I kind of want to expand on that a little bit. Especially, okay, so I, I might be misquoting it, but you just read the epigraph about, like, setting one thing up and knocking two things down, and that's kind of the nature of it. Is that roughly the right sentiment? Yeah. Um, it's It almost seems... So I think you're right. I think it's, uh, Elliot, I think it's a little more complicated than ruin bad, preservation is good. You know? It seems like ruin, even... Let's say ruin as a shard. This is getting real big, Cosmere. So, um, but it, ruin as a shard. I don't know if you had like the best person ever as the shard of ruin. It feels like they would inevitably still enact ruin. Like it, it feels like it's an inevitable aspect of the shard to kind of lead to maybe decay or destruction. I mean, it talks about ruin as what, like breaking things down to simpler elements or things like that. Mm-hmm. And so it's it's tough because looking at it, you're like, that's bad. That's not good. I don't know. It, it, the, we'd we'd have to we'll have to learn a lot more about ruin for me to be able to like go much further than that. But it it is a weird dilemma. It doesn't seem to me. Well, it does seem to me like reading the book. I'm like, ruin is evil. But me thinking about potentially the shard of ruin makes me think the shard of ruin is not necessarily evil, but inevitably harmful or inevitably difficult. Right. I guess. So it's it's kind of a little bit of a complication there, I think, which is interesting in what I'm gonna be that's that's what I'm gonna be thinking through as we continue to read. Yeah. The minor greater cosmere spoilers if you this is if miss is the only thing you picked up the two things you have to consider when talking to a shard is the shard itself which is ruin in this case and then the vessel the the, the shard holder and how that person interprets that power because uh, they have they have some influence on what they do with that power but when all said and done the intent of the shard, which is ruin, is go- is going to have more influence over the holder than the holder is over the shard. So, like you're saying, Paul, even if you're really good and holding ruin, at some point you're probably going to go askew just because of the shard you're holding. Alright. Chapter 9. Allomancy was indeed born with the mists. Or at least, Allomancy began at the same time as the mists. When Rashik took the power at the Well of Ascension, he became aware of certain things. Some were whispered to him by ruin. Others were granted to him as an instinctive part of the power. One of these was an understanding of the three metallic arts. He knew, for instance, that the nuggets of metal in the Chamber of Ascension would make those who ingested them into Mistborn. These were, after all, fractions of the very power in the Well itself. Chapter 10, Nuggets of Pure Allomancy, the Power of Preservation itself. Why Rashik left one of those nuggets at the Well of Ascension, 
I do not know. Perhaps he didn't see it, or perhaps he intended to save it to bestow upon a fortunate servant. Perhaps he feared that someday he would lose his power and would need the nugget to grant him alamancy. Either way, I bless Rashik for, for his oversight, for without that nugget, Elend would have died that day at the well. So now we're getting answers. Now, now we're getting told what happened. What did we, what did Elend ingest that made him a misborn? Well, here you go. A nugget of pure allomancy. Power of preservation itself. There's a lot of information in that single sentence. Yeah. I, which you asked at the end of last book, where does that metal that he swallowed go on our little periodic table of the allomantic right. metals? Um, I don't think it'll go on there. I, th I think it's independent. We know the author is not Ellen, unless he's talking about Ellen in the third person. <laughs> yeah, that'd be Logical. a sneaky way to cover it, just being honest there, you know? Anything else? All right. Uh, I think we... Th yeah, three more, so I'll go ahead and read them all. The first contract, oft spoken by the Chondra, was originally just a series of promises made by the first generation to the Lord Ruler. They wrote these promises down, and in doing so, confided the first Chondra... codified the first Chondra laws. They were worried about governing themselves, independently of the Lord Ruler and his empire, so they took what they had written to him, asking for his approval. He commanded it cast into steel, then personally scratched a signature into the bottom. This code was the first thing that a Chondra learned upon awakening from his life as a mistwraith. It contained commands to revere earlier generations, simple legal rights granted to each Chondra, provisions for creating new Chondra, and a demand for ultimate dedication to the Lord Ruler. Most disturbingly, the first contract contained a provision which, if invoked, would require the mass suicide of the entire Chandra people. Chapter 12. Rashik moved the Well of Ascension, obviously. It was very clever of him, perhaps the cleverest thing he did. He knew that the power would one day return to the Well, for such as this, the fundamental power by which the world itself was formed does not simply run out. It can be used therefore, and therefore diffused, but it, was always, it will always be renewed. So, knowing the rumors and tales would persist, Rashik changed the very landscape of the world. He put mountains in what became the north and named that location Terrace. Then he flattened his true homeland and built a capital there. He constructed his palace around that room at its heart, the room where he would meditate, the room that was the replica of his old hovel in Terrace, a refuge created during the last moments before he ran out of power. Chapter 13. Hemallergy, it is called, because of the connection to blood. It is not a coincidence, I believe, that death is always involved in the transfer of powers via hemallergy. Marsh once described it as a messy process, not the adjective I would have chosen. It's not disturbing enough. So it's not Marsh. And probably not a chondra either, although that seems unlikely that a hero of ages would be 
Bacondra, but maybe so, I guess. Okay. But yeah, more, more answers, more like direct. Here's what happened. The Lord Ruler reshaped the world and renamed regions so that it would confuse people. Answers. Yeah. Which that is so cheating, by the way. <laughs> like, oh, you're trying to figure out where this is. Oh yeah, those mountains. I destroyed them. It's all flat now. That area that you thought was flat, nope, mountains. Good luck figuring that one out. I feel like if you got that much power, you should make something in the northern fake terrace mountains that you just made to have a thumping noise like the Well of Ascension, or else you're going to have a Vin walking around and be like, there's nothing actually up here. I'm going to go back to Luthadel, which is exactly what happened. The... The hint about the mass suicide of the Chondra yeah. seems, I want to say like direct foreshadowing, but very likely a rather important hint. And it, uh, we'll get into it here in a second, but it also gives way more weight to why the Chondra are so scared. Like we learn a lot yeah. about Chondra in this episode, which we'll talk about here in a second. They have really weird laws for this reason, that apparently there's something in the first contract that would require them all to kill themselves if that was triggered. Which I can see why there's confusion amongst the Chondra, the politics and what Tensoon is saying and all that about, well, who, who are they beholden to now? Right. Their entire existence is related to this contract that the Lord Ruler wrote. Well, now what? Lord Ruler's gone. Yeah. So does that mean all the laws are irrelevant? Clearly the in charge Conjure don't think so, but I can I can definitely see how this becomes a interesting legal question. Right. And that let's go ahead and talk about Ten soon, because I do want to I do want to ask this directly right now. Are we told or can we figure out if if a contract holder dies for a Chondra, is the contract then transferred to someone or is it voided seems like a very we... seems like an important know. question yeah i don't know if we've like seen any special like another like application of that we've never like seen anything like that have we yes we have i can disprove this actually um ask answer my own question zane dies and tensoon does not then serve Vin, he returns to his homeland to get a new assignment. So that's our answer, that when when what's-his-face, Zane dies, the contract is void, and he leaves, as opposed to it gets transferred to Vin. So his, his, his argument in his trial here that the first contract is now transferred to Vin actually doesn't have any legs to stand on right all the other contra are just going to say it's void and we don't owe vin anything so i i will i will push on that a little bit so this normal contract the these these contracts that he had with zane right hmm. that's just a con that's like i assume there's just like a standard contract contract which is basically you are this person's assistant you do whatever they command within the rules of their overarching rules and contracts and things. 
it doesn't matter if Zane is a Mistborn who's trying to do all this crazy stuff, or if Zane is just a chill guy who likes to go for walks, right? Like it doesn't actually not make much of a difference. So, so all I'm saying is that it's just like to that person, it's not like for a specific purpose, I guess. Whereas the like first contract, I don't know. I feel like I would need to read it because I feel like I don't know if it's to a specific purpose or, I guess seat of power like a king if you will like with the lord ruler or if it is like that where it is like to rashik the person not like the lord ruler figure if that makes sense sure the the holder of the power versus the person um i think i think it would come down to some form of technicality there as to whether or not his argument has legs to stand on or not i did think it was kind of a funny argument I was kind of expecting him to not have a logical argument coming into this scene. And then he pulls it out and I'm like, okay, okay, I can see that. But I could also see everyone just being like, no, absolutely not. You know, she has nothing to do with this on that scale, you know, and, and moving forward, you know. Voiding, voiding contracts is weird because... If they're saying that the first contract is now void, well, what do you do? Like, does the first generation even have power anymore? Because the first generation is the ones who made the contract with the Lord Ruler. But if their contract is void, then why are they listening to the first generation at that point anymore? Like, doesn't their whole thing break down if once the Lord Ruler dies? Seems like it. Oh. So what do we know about the first contract? That's really what it comes down to. The the only things that we're told is in that epigraph that we just read, which was writing rules for yourself so you don't have to govern yourself because they were scared. And then Tensoon references a couple times in these chapters that the contracts they make are referenced from the first contract. It was made with the Lord Ruler, and they have to follow each contract to the letter or else they're in big trouble, which Tensoon is here. But as far as the contents of it, I couldn't tell you. I think that's ultimately what it kind of hinges on is whatever the first contract actually is, what it actually is about. That would be kind of my takeaway is you could kind of jump around with it. It may be, maybe this, maybe that, but I don't know if I could solidly land anywhere without without knowing what really the first contract entails. Anything else on Tensoon? We we don't get a verdict at the end of part one here for him. We get a... He, he gives his big speech. We should go sign up on Vin's team because um, our contract's with her now because she's the mother is what, she, is what he says. And the first generation doesn't answer him. And so the second generation say, we'll give you a ruling in a month. And that's where we leave him. So anything else on Tensu? Just the one note. And it was in one of the epigraphs there as well, that Chandra are apparently made from mist wraiths, mm, yeah. which is kind of a cool explanation. I mean, we knew they were related, but not only are they related, they're directly related. It's you take a mist wraith and you awaken it somehow into a 
into a chondra, like a, a a fledgling chondra that you then have to teach the the ways of the chondra. Apparently, uh, minor other cosmic spoilers. Where have we heard the verb awaken before? Was that warbreaker? Warbreaker. Yeah. You yeah. push breaths into it and awaken it. Ooh. There you go. I, I'm actually curious to know Elliot's thoughts. Just <clears throat> zooming out a little bit, just like looking at the book. How do you feel about this whole like Chandra and the generations? There's a lot of like, oh, the second generations, they're lazy bums, but crafty or whatever. And there's the these the fourth fifth generation kids are just rebellious or you know like there's this whole thing i'm curious to know just what you think about it as a whole it it seems like a almost sarcastic commentary on like our world you know you think about generations in our world and how there's generational differences and you know the the older generations complain about the younger generations and the younger generations complain about how stodgy and unwilling to change the older generations are and i feel like that's probably been a thing since the the beginning of time and you kind of the chondra it's kind of inflated to a, a whole different level because they don't die and so you have like brand new eighth ninth generationers and first generation chondra the first of their kind that ever lived all in the same place and so you you not just have like 20 40 60 80 year like generational differences you have hundreds of years of generations all together so a, a rather interesting cultural structure I, i'm actually kind of intrigued by it i i agree i think it's pretty fascinating uh, i keep thinking this to myself i haven't read anything of miss bornera 2 but i keep having this sneaking suspicion that uh Whenever we get there, that we're going to meet someone who's like, oh, I'm a 42nd generation Chondra or whatever, you know, something way <laughs> yeah. down the line. I keep thinking about that. I have no no reference for that and no nowhere to go with that point. But, uh, you know, I'm wondering how far these generations are going to go or how new they are, yeah. I guess. That Anyways. And soon's rebellious young actions are just misunderstood. You just don't get me, right? Yeah. Like, you just don't <laughs> understand. Yeah. Pretty much. And just as a side note, Era 2 is only 300 years down the road, so it'd only be like generation like 14 that we're talking about instead of 42. Assuming things kept going as, as us. Assuming um, there's not a mass suicide of all the Chondra. That's true. Yeah, but would you really invent a magic system and then mass suicide them when you're just starting the series? Seems kind of lame. Uh, sounds like a Sander Lanchy kind of thing could, to me. Could be a book three kind of thing, you know. That's I, true. I, I, I wouldn't leave that out of the question. Let's talk about Vin and Ellen. We have, they're trying to figure out the mists. This town that they've just rescued last episode, they then force them into the mists and they know that about one in, what was it, one in five, one in six of them will get mistborn or mist sickness. And then some of them will die from it and some of them will be fine. So then they're marching them all the way back to Luthadel for their own good because the mists are encroaching on their little outskirt town here that they've just rescued them in. But then they force them into the mist because they have to travel during the mist hours. Um, 
Ellen and Vin really have a hard time with this. They they're trying to figure out: Are we killing these people? Is because we're asking them to do do this, or even forcing them to do this? Are we killing whatever it is, like three percent of them, or whatever it is? I had some flashbacks. PTSD is probably too strong of a word to like COVID. Think mm. about this like COVID. Yeah. You know, some some kind of similar discussions were had, right? Of well, we just need to attain herd immunity. We just need <laughs> yes. to we just need to get to the point where we've got enough people immune and then it'll kind of kind of die out. Well, you know, a lot of people died from COVID in our world. And so it, it's a there's a discussion that's like relevant in our in our modern day of do you you just say well this is a this is a part of life we need to get to immunity as quickly as we can or do you expend resources to try and protect everyone on the chance that they're gonna get sick and die big questions it is thankfully in what I guess in Mistborn, it's a little more. It's actually, I feel like a little tougher because it seems like it's guaranteed. Like, it's not like a you yeah. can build up an immunity in, in this case. It's not like a virus, right. you know, uh, which is maybe even scarier. And it and it gives some weight to how all of our characters and the ska that we've seen throughout the story are are terrified of the mists. You know, they don't want to be out in the mists. You know. And that kind of kind of gives some more weight to that when you think about it. Think about it that way. Yeah. Vin has adopted a pet coloss, or one of them specifically has a human. No, a coloss. <laughs> oh, a human. The <laughs> yes, yes, okay. human. The coloss, coloss, the human. Um. What? I don't even remember. How does this come about? Why does she pick this one? Does he just hang out next to her and so she starts talking to him? Or why is it this guy? That's a good question. I don't remember. At some point in the early chapters, they like took over the whole army and Vin just like needed somebody to carry some stuff. And oh, so she just okay. grabbed the nearest Coloss. Was like, hey, you carry this. And then he's kind of stuck around her ever since. And he hates her and wants to kill her. But Vin won't let him. Yeah. <laughs> what a great relationship. That. Absolutely. So, and what he says his name is human. He says his name is human, and he says he is human. Is that right? Correct. He's so he claims to be human, but Vin keeps keeps correcting him. So when Vin then asks what your name is, he says, "Well, call me human," and as like a trump card, so like, okay, now you have to call uh, me human because that's my name. Ha ha. So he's human. Okay. All right. He even says stuff like we should be in the houses or things like that. It seems really weird. Uh, so similar to how I asked, you know, what do you think about the Chondra and all their generations? I'm curious to get Elliot's perspective on how do you feel about the Coas? We have, so the perspective we have that the bit of a Coas are they're brutish and strong. They use these huge swords and they can go into a frenzy and just destroy. Like, like they are the strongest, like, probably the strongest, like, beast type thing on this planet that we can really see, but the le lowest intelligence level. Like, there's 
not any range of emotion except like i guess happy and angry like that's that's about it you know i don't even know if there's happy but there's angry and neutral at least um i, I would been diagram here... it on indifferent and angry they kind of just hang yeah. out and do nothing or they're angry that's that's a good way of saying it yeah so there's that and then here we see Oh, reasoning. It's it's reasoning. He hum, human the coloss is reasoning some with Finn. You know, not not like big reasoning skills, but like you said, he's like call me human or whatever. You know, and and he has the thought in his head that I'm human. I should be in a house. That's what humans do. You know, it's it's weird. It's weird, and it's almost a little uncomfortable. But it's it's like a primal kind of nature? I, I don't know. I don't know. I'm curious to know what you think, Elliot, thus far. It's all a bit much, I guess. There's definitely definitely questions. I think in one of these chapters, Vin even tries to dig into how they reproduce. Mm -hmm. Every, everybody knows, well, yeah, that there's occasionally more of them, but apparently no one's paid attention for long enough to notice where the new ones come from because there doesn't seem to be baby coloss rolling around so how how do more coloss happen don't know the yeah the bigger the bigger questions are are interesting because it starts to feel like it's been a long time since i've read frankenstein but like the whole it's it's something that's been created as an attempt to make a human and it didn't quite succeed but the thing you made knows what it was intended to be and therefore thinks it should be that but to everyone else clearly isn't it's, it's a weird weird situation yeah, that is an interesting point i think that's actually a really good comparison it seems like it at least we we were told that the Lord Ruler created the Coloss, right? I believe so. I think so. Yeah. That might. I mean, that might have been a while or, ago, or at but... least, or at least that he has control of the Coloss or right. something like that. And that's why, like, what people were sad that the Lord Ruler was gone, because then it seems like the Coloss were just kind of set loose. Right. Seems a bit weird. I, I have that in my head as Lord Ruler created Coloss, but maybe some conflicting information to that, though, is references that Pondra are stated as of preservation. Right. And humans and Coloss are stated as of ruin. Right. So maybe unravel that. So with that information, maybe it's deliberately not said that the Lord Ruler created Coloss because he did create Chandra, right? That's the whole right. So he did create Chandra so, yeah. while holding preservation, right? So he probably, with that logic, he probably didn't create Coloss. He just had control of them as Lord Rulerness. So I would actually, yeah. I don't. Maybe our comment section can inform us one way yeah. or the other. I think it could be as simple as. The Lord Ruler could control them because the Lord Ruler had such incredible powers and element, and we know that Coloss can be controlled by Alamancy. Right. 
He could have just had them all in a little, you know, light control to keep them stagnant and keep them from destroying rampaging villages, you know. Um, but it could be something, something deeper as well. So that's something interesting. Do you think anything is going to come of this whole like this? This felt like kind of an odd thing to drop now of this like. Coloss thinks he's a human dilemma, you know. I thought we were worried about, you know, the mists and the deepness and ruin and stuff like that, you know. And the world ending? Yes. Yeah, yes, yeah, exactly. Not the social identity of this Coloss. Feels like we're setting up a complex villain in the Coloss. Okay. Like, we, we talked about in book one how... The Inquisitors are just plain evil. There, there's no ifs, ands, or buts. There's, there's no, oh, uh, is, are they going to get a redemption arc? Or, you know, I guess there's maybe like the whole they're being mind-controlled thing. But the the actions of an Inquisitor are just pure evil. They delight in torture. Holos, maybe we're setting up as a foil to that of... Yeah, they're the they're the armies of the bad guys, but they wish they were human, and if given the chance, could they become so? They're just actually cranky toddlers in eleven foot tall bodies. Like it feels like maybe we're setting up a oh wait, they're actually misunderstood, perhaps. Sure. Ellen asked the group in a little meeting that they have. Tell me about Kelsier. Because I didn't know him, but you all did. Tell me about Kelsier. And Sazid, which we'll talk about him in a second, Sazid is the one who replies, and Sazid says, El Kelsier would tell us to smile more. And Breeze and Ham kind of echo this and say, oh yeah, back in book one, when we lost our entire army, Kelsier cracked a joke, like immediately. All He... It's not that he was out of touch, it's that he was just determined to be happy and that the Lord Ruler couldn't take that from him no matter how things went wrong or how hard they tried. So Sazed says, we should all smile more. That's what Kelsier would say. And they, they don't outright say it, but isn't it Kelsier's line, I am hope? Yes, Kelsier's line is I am hope. That that's what they're talking around. They don't say it, but what they need is more hope, and not the oh, I hope it's going to get better. No, the 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 faith side of hope. The I have hope that it will get better. Yeah, side of thing. That that's what they're talking about, even though they don't use that word. I'm glad you brought that up. Isn't is that Kelsey's last words? I think I thought I think so. I think I think it is. I think it is that I am hope. Right before you get stabbed. The I am that spirit. which you cannot kill. Yeah. I think I am hope. I think I think that is. In the in the same meeting here, Set kind of just acknowledges to the reader that he's just kind of part of the group now. Like last book, we definitely didn't include him as part of like the crew, and they even ask him like, "What are you doing here?" <laughs> like, yeah, I chuckled a bit at one of the main villains of the previous book he's chilling over there in the corner providing advice why is he here oh yeah he's good at strategy so yeah he's on our team now our 
All right. Do they? Don't they say he's like the Dachshund substitute? Something like the aristocrat strategy dude? I guess. He's still kind of a jerk. Very much a jerk. What about uh, what about Marsh before we end part one? We the okay, last. We just getting... we we were talking about Kolos just now. There's a line in this chapter that says how many Kolos Marsh has at his command. You guys remember the number? Three hundred thousand. That is a freaking lot of Kolos. Yeah, I mean that's like. Considerably more than the twenty thousand that Vin and Ellen have. Yeah, right. Like cover the land with bodies, Coloss. I'll be honest; I didn't remember that. <laughs> That's really scary. <laughs> yeah, three hundred thousand Coloss. They talk about how twenty thousand is like a. a I mean, that's like you, you're going to level cities. Like you can't, you know, really hardly fight back against twenty thousand Coloss. And as, and as far as we know, our heroes don't know about this. Apparently there's this massive 300,000 Coloss army in the north in Terrace that they don't know about. But Marsh does come up with a plan. <laughs> Which is? Wait for Ruin to get complacent and then seize his moment and kill himself. Yes, which we, we've seen him try to do, I think, twice already in this book. Um, yeah. And so at this point, he's resigned, say, okay, so Ruin can stop me, so I'll stop and pretend to be Ruin's little helper. And then somehow when I get my moment, that's when I'll pull my spike out. Even though both times so far it hasn't worked. I, I did get a feeling as I was reading this chapter, I couldn't help comparing in my mind Ruin's control of Marsh and Vin's control of human the Coloss. Oh. They feel okay. rather similar. Because of human's line of I hate you, I want to kill you. That and just the whole I can let you do what you want to do, or with just a simple thought, I can take complete control of you and your every motion. Okay. It, it feels like the same thing. And that makes it feel kind of icky. Uh-huh. That is a really interesting parallel that I've never thought of. So the the difference that like the difference I'm thinking of is and, and this is why I think I think this is adding a lot of weight to why it's important that we're having this conversation with human the coloss. It gives him a, a personality, you know, until then a personality, if you will. It shows he has desires, I guess, or thoughts, right? Before then, we just think of the Colossus as completely mindless and helpless, right? Whereas we know Marsh, if he were not being fully controlled by Rune, maybe wouldn't be helpless. Like, we know Marsh, we know who he is, we know he's not, he himself's not, like, evil, right? You know, he is an Inquisitor, done a lot of bad things. That's a different topic, but you, you like we we have a perspective of Marsh as a human, but we don't have perspective of the Coloss in that same way, and that's where it's different. But you're right, you're right. It is a very interesting parallel of complete control over someone. Complete control over someone is kind of a messy thing ethically, you know. 
Um, and I goodness, yeah. And I think it's absolutely okay to draw this conclusion that the way Vin thinks of human is probably the way Ruin thinks of Marsh, and that you can do whatever you want until you're going to go directly against me, and then I'm going to take complete control of you. So applying that to Marsh, we see the tragic end to that. So comparing that to human, yeah. Like one other thing that 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 has me curious is so we've seen Marsh. That's the only Inquisitor perspective we have because he's the only Inquisitor that we would like know. Like we knew Marsh before he became an Inquisitor, so that makes sense why he's our reference point. But you know, I mean, what's to say that the other Inquisitors? aren't in a similar-ish boat. You know, they may all just be bad. They may all be bad except Marsh, and that's okay. But, like, obviously they're all going to act bad because they are under Ruin's control. But, I mean, who's to say there's not the... Uh, Elliot joked about the there's no <laughs> Inquisitor Redemption arc, which I would agree, but, but, you know, there is the thought of if they were somehow freed from Ruin's control, would they be... You know, w- would it be different? You know, you have a theme for part one, Elliot. My I do. It, <laughs> mind control. <laughs> now that we spent so much time talking about it, it, it easily could be yeah. despair I, and depression. Yeah, it, that's the direction I more went with. Was was I went with impending apocalypse because it just feels like that's the start of this book is. Oh yeah, and the world is falling apart. What are you going to do about it? And every chapter we go through, it's like, oh no, the world's really falling apart, and it's even falling apart more than you thought it was. It seems like we're picking up speed. the The avalanche, the snowball, is getting bigger and bigger. Of just this place, this planet does not seem like a good planet to be on right now. Yeah. Uh, place des- vacation destinations. Anyone? Yeah, Scatrill. I'll take high storms any day at this point. Spoilers. It's just high storms. <laughs> There's storms on Roshar. All the time. All right. Real quick into part two. We went three chapters into part two. Spook. Elliot, way back in the final empire, I think we were like f- six episodes into the final empire. And... Vin and Kelsier do a pewter drag all the way back to Luthadel. And you made an offhand comment of that seems really dangerous. <laughs> that that seems scary. That you could that your mistborn powers let you push your body to th- those extremes. I believe you even dropped the phrase addict or the term addiction. Fast forward to this book. We open part two with Spook. What do you think of Spook in his current situation? And this is getting a little a little freaky. Yeah. We pick it up with Spook, where in his perspective, he drops the fact that he's been flaring, not burning, like full on burn your tin as hard as you can for a year. Mm-hmm. More than yep, since a year straight since clubs died, and that seems like we're in full on substance addiction. 
with Spook. Yep. He it does not seem like a nice way to live. And yet it becomes that thing where when you let it go, when you stop, you you crave it so much. It's the world seems dull without it. So he has to have it, but it's clearly ruining him. Interesting term. Which I didn't think about before I said it, but then as soon as I did, I was like, ooh, ooh, ooh. ooh. But yeah. The the chapter 16 epigraph, I won't read 14 and 15. I'll save those for another time. But chapter 16, I want to read because it directly addresses this. They are called allomantic savants, men and women who flare their metals so long and so hard that the constant influ influx of allomantic power transforms their very physiology, physiology. In most cases, with most metals, the effects of this are very slight. Bronze burners, for instance, often become bronze savants without knowing it. Their range is expanded from burning the metal so long. Becoming a pewter savant is dangerous, as it requires pushing the body so hard in a state where one cannot feel exhaustion or pain. Most accidentally kill themselves before this process is complete. And in my opinion, the benefit isn't worth the effort. Tin savants, however, now, they are something special. Endowed with senses beyond that of any normal alamancer would want or eat would need or even want, they become slaves to what they touch, hear, see, smell, and taste. Yet the abnormal power of these senses gives them a distinct and interesting advantage. One could argue that like an inquisitor who has been transformed by hemallergic spikes, the alamantic savant is no longer even human. No, I think that's a little extreme. Like, I understand it, but that's kind of, I mean, that's just crazy. Yeah. Definitely gives impressions of becoming part of the magic that you're using. Yeah. Using the magic so much that it becomes part of you, and, and you become as much it as it is, as you are a conduit of it. Which I don't think I don't think that has a happy ending in many scenarios. Yeah. The stuff going going on around Spook is interesting. He's he's a spy in Orto for our heroes, and Orto is under the, the control of the citizen in in ca in capital letters, the citizen. And we find out by the end of chapter 16, that the citizen is a mystic. Uh, Tinai? Or is he a... No. No, no, no. He was, a, yeah, pushing... Steel, steel pushing. Which is a coin shot? Right. Coin shot. So the citizen is a coin shot, and the, the guards he's fighting are pewter... Or are thugs, are, are pewter arms or whatever they're called so right before he blacks out right before the end of 16 spook thinks to himself hold up these these are not these are not scott these are nobles in disguise of we need to rid the city of all nobles but secretly they're mistings which means they at least have a little noble blood in them 
least descendants of nobles, right? Sure. And Orto is going full Kelsier. If you have any noble blood in you, you do not deserve to live. That's how they interpret Kelsier's teachings back in the final empire. So it, yeah, they, they burn people alive in houses in chapter 16 that are, that have noble descent or have noble ancestry. I, by the point of chapter 16, by the end of 16, I was getting full on French revolution vibes yeah. when they, when they were going to the execution, I was like afraid that they're going to walk into the square and there's a guillotine in the middle <laughs> of the, the square. Like it just felt like that's what it was building to. We've had, we've had kind of this French flavor to all of this on, on schedule, just a little bit. So the names Kelsia, right, and Demu. Yeah. Yeah. And the, the architecture perhaps of, you know, some of our cities and stuff is almost like a, like a Gothic French kind of influence. Not that I know anything about that, but the this was like full on. Oh, okay, and we're also now in the middle of the French Revolution, where right. the the common folk have overthrown the nobles and are lining people up to execute them on the slightest pretense. This mm -hmm. is this is full on like French reign of terror. Which what would that foreshadow the uh the fate of the citizen? What happens to him? <laughs> Headless. Yep. Or I guess birds alive in a house. Equivalent. Yep. All right, gentlemen. Anything else for episode 174 before we get well into part two next week? You, you ready for a crazy theory? Always. Always. Absolutely. Buckle, buckle up for this one. So I... I'm not sure if this is just my brain grabbing random facts scattered throughout these chapters and forcing them together whether they fit or not. But prediction is Spook will become an Inquisitor. Okay. And I, I don't have any one thing to point to on why I think this is true. But just so much around these chapters seem to align. We that this this thirst for experience, this thirst for the like purest form of senses, and a delight in certain things to an excess seems very inquisitory to mm. me. From the experiences that we've got from like Marsh. And and the perspective we we've got from him, where Marsh is looking on the land and delighting in its chaotic state. Spook's not there, but he's starting to say things and do things that feel like that kind of sentiment of "I want to experience the world in extremes just because." Mm. So I I don't know how, I don't know why, I don't know when. Some somewhere in here, Spook is either going to be like presented the opportunity and willingly choose to be, or is going to fall into a wrap of hungering for more and inquisitor, full on hemallergic spikes. Still don't 
quite know exactly what all that means, but encounter. Well, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Did Spook get spiked through the pewter guard? Oh, 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 wow. Yes, he sure did. End of this chapter. Yeah. The guard is in front of him, the pewter arm. Uh-huh. And a sword is stabbed through. Uh-huh. Oh, my goodness. Through that guy into Spook. That's weird. Yeah. Hits his, I didn't think it about that. Hits his heart, too, doesn't it? Or close to. Yeah, or, I think it was through the other person's heart. Through the it? other person's heart. It hits his chest. Yeah. That seems oddly specific. It does, yeah. I didn't even put that together until you mentioned that. I but There's either. my one thing. There's my specific thing I'll point to for <laughs> this uh, prediction and theory that I had in mind all along. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah, I, I was very much thinking like much later down the road. Yeah. But yikes, if that's a, an act of hemallergy right. right there, which again, we don't, we have name. We have the name of it. We know it involves spikes. We know it involves metals. We know it's magic and it involves blood and killing. But like how exactly do you do it and what are you even doing? We don't have all those pieces yet, but gosh, yeah, that seems highly suspicious. Seems lowly suspicious. All right, give me a second. Thank you, thank you. Okay, let's do a quick Stormlight Refresher to end this episode. Paul, you're going to leave. I'm in trouble. We are 1-0 to Elliot. Paul, you're going to lead this, and Elliot will lead next week. Your first question is a chapter name. You need to tell me what happened in the chapter. Your chapter title is Monsters. Monsters. I think this was a Shalon flashback chapter in Words Words of Radiance, not Rhythm of War, because those are still easy to mix up. I think it was a flashback chapter. And I, if I if I need to go into more specifics, you don't because you're incorrect, Elliot. Okay, good. Ah, oh, oh dear, that was absolutely going to be my answer. And I, that, I was pretty confident in that one. I can't lie. I thought I knew oh, that I was, one. I was going to say the same thing. Um, well, it, it's clearly a salon, salon, salon chapter that's not a flashback, okay, but one in which she. Does monstrous things. Incorrect. You both you both are correct that it is in words of radiance. I'll give you that much. Um we actually mentioned this chapter title in the podcast because I remember Elliot thought this was funny, because this is the chapter that Kaladin learns how to ride a horse. And Kaladin oh. calls the horses <laughs> monsters. And oh, that is the, from the chapter title. I thought that was going to be That's a hilarious, a, a easy ball for you guys, but apparently not. All right, nope. No, I I remember that we talked about that now barely, but I don't I don't remember that at all. I don't That's remember hilarious. one of our random conversations from three years ago, Paul? Three years ago. <laughs> and uh, how dare I? All right. Well, 
I have an advantage because I listen back to this podcast every week to edit. But all right, Elliot, over to you for your quote ID for the week. You don't have to set me doing anything important. I came to you instead of one of the other battalions because most of your men spend time patrolling. If I'm patrolling, I won't be in much danger and my fits won't hurt anyone. But at least I can see, I can feel what it's like to be a soldier. Can I get another read of it? And can you also remind me, so is my, what's my goal of what I'm supposed to answer? All, Sorry. All, to... all you have to tell me, you short? all you have to tell me is who is talking. You don't have to set me doing anything. Imp- oh, go ahead, Elliot. If you get it right, then Paul I don't. Going first or... Elliot is going first. And if you get it right, I don't have to okay. reread it. Okay. Uh, that is Renarin. Correct. Who's he talking to? That I'm scratching my head slightly because I can't remember exactly the course of events. Renarin joins Bridge 4 eventually, but it doesn't feel like he's talking to... Maybe he is. He's talking to Calvin. Calvin? Yep, you're right. It is Calvin? Okay. okay. All right. Elliot's up. I thought it was going to be Sigzel. Yeah. He's talking to Calvin. I thought it was, he was going to be talking to Sigzel. Okay. All right. All right. Back over to Paul. Here's your review. You need to tell me what book it's about and what they rated the book. Okay, this is my favorite style of question that we have. These are fun. These are very okay. fun. These are even more fun looking for these. I laugh quite a bit looking for these. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. <clears throat> this went from medieval political thriller to a nerd lore fever dream. I'll always long for the days when the story was that was about men wielding magical swords in shiny armor and not about depression, PTSD, and an incomprehensible babble of sci-fi fantasy jargon. I think this... I Oh, gosh. I think they rated it decent. I think they rated it a 4 out of 5. Okay. It's, it is an out of 5, correct? It's a, yep, 5 stars. Okay. I think they rated it a 4 out of 5, and I think this is about Rhythm of War. Okay. Elliot? This is one of those like tantrum ratings where they just they floored it one out of five. And can, can you do you zero out of five? Is that it? Is you that cannot. You have to give it at least one, which I don't know why. Okay. Why would you not be able to do zero? Anyway, yeah, it's, big question. This is the one out of five. They rock bottomed it because they they finished a book, or maybe they didn't even finish, and they got angry about it, and so they hopped on Goodreads to just slam it. One out of five. It, I want to go Rhythm of War that the plot of that book fits the description of what was read. I'm, I'd be surprised if this person made it to Rhythm of War. Well, they, I, I don't see them reading that far. So I'm going to actually go with Words of Radiance. All right. This is a one out of five star rating for Rhythm of War. Ah. So we split it again. You shared points on that one again. <laughs> wow. Okay. I'm surprised a one out of five. If you've made it that far and you're still writing that... a one out of five. Yeah. Yeah. The 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 description seemed very rhythm of war to me because very like you know, it was even yeah. a bit much for me of the amount of fabrioles and stuff. True. But man, a one out of five. That's tough. That's tough. <laughs> All right. We are. 2 1 
to Elliot, and this goes to Elliot first. This is just a standard trivia question for your fifth and final question. Who does Venley's spren, Timber, constantly tell Venley to reveal herself as a Night Radiant to? Yeesh. Venley. Reveal yourself. I remember these promptings. I remember these... Oh, but who is it to? It's not Leshwi. Is it Leshwi? It might be. It's not, though. Ugh. It's Leshwi. That's my answer. Paul, would you like to answer this? No. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> um, so my initial thought was Leshwi as well, but I have a... There's, there's this, like, thought stuck in my head that there's, like... The thing is, I would never come to a name, but I think there's, like, some random... Arshendi soldier that that she was like she was like sur- not surrounded she was like in their crew like the, you know there, there's like a fight battle going on or whatever and she's like in their ranks ranks it's not like in the battle I'm not doing a good job of describing this but there's like she's with soldiers and it would not be good for them to know that she's a night radiant hmm. but I feel like Temper keeps saying you should tell them but I'm not sold that that's right enough. I would also say Leshwi. That's who I was thinking. And I was even more embarrassed because I spent half the time Elliot was was talking about it, trying to remember the name Leshwi. It was right on the tip of my tongue. I can't think of anyone other than that because we know it is someone in the the Parshendi realm. It's not a it's not a human. It's not an Alethi. Sure. Final answer? Yeah, I, I have to stick with Lashwi. Both of you are correct. It is Lashwi. She does reveal herself at the end of Rhythm of War, like three chapters from the end. And mm-hmm. Lashwi freaks out in a positive way because she mm-hmm. gives the reveal that the Spren have come back to us. We were the original Knights Radiant, and the Spren have come back to us. You're, you bonding Timber has huge implications for the singers moving forwards. So Leshwi yeah. is very happy about it. And then she drops the name Raya as a, did, did you know an honor spren named Raya? Um, I used to know her, which would imply that Leshwi used to be a windrunner. All right. Absolutely. I remembered that conversation when she was told. That, that goes again to Elliot. So he is leading two zero going into next week any closing thoughts Paul or Elliot I'm excited for the next review prediction that, that, that's my favorite question as of now those are very funny yes see you gentlemen next week thanks for joining me see ya peace out